I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. It's an honor to be joined today by Dr. Carrie Stevens. Dr. Stevens is an associate professor and a distinguished teaching professor in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research focuses on communication and technology challenges in contexts like natural disasters. She's authored over 80 journal articles and two books and is featured in a TEDx talk. Today, I'm talking with Carrie about her social media research and her service in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. This project is funded by the National Science Foundation. Carrie, I am a big fan of your work. Uh, Thank you for taking time to talk with listeners and I today about this project, one that is so incredibly timely and important. So thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you for this opportunity, Lynn. Mm, mm -mm. So Carrie, your recent essay in Health Communication, it begins with a profound story. For listeners who haven't read your essay yet, I'd like to take just a moment to read an excerpt. I was sitting across from a middle-aged professional single mother preparing to interview her when she said, will the federal government have access to your data? It says here that your project is funded by the National Science Foundation. I was a bit stunned because my colleagues told me that having NSF-funded research would open doors and now I found it creating a challenge before I even began the interview. I carefully explained how we de-identified our data and the care we took in storing and analyzing it. She was satisfied with my response, but she reminded me that some people I would interview were likely in the U.S. on temporary work visas, and the political climate in December of 2017 was unsettling for most of them. She was herself Chinese, And she never told me if that applied to her situation or not, just that I should be aware. Then she set the informed consent down and said, Why do you do this research? Our community has been devastated by the flooding. And what do you hope to learn? Carrie, you lived this story. You then re-narrated the experience in your essay. Can you take listeners and I back to that moment. Um, how, how were you feeling at that time? You know, I was, I was a bit shocked. I've done a lot of research. I've done a lot of qualitative interviews in my academic career. And all of a sudden in the moment, I realized that the work we were doing was so important, but it was also important that we made absolute sure that we protected our human subjects. The other thing that I realized is that I've been a social scientist and before that I was a biochemist and I was taught that science should be objective. 
And I realized I couldn't just sit back and be my objective researcher self, that instead I had to share my own story. I had to risk being vulnerable and expose some of the emotions that I had. And so literally the next words that came out of my mouth were, I do this work because I'm a flood survivor. Mm-hmm. So your commitment to the project is both personal and professional. Oh, it was in the third grade, correct? When yes, your yes. family survived a flood. Um, can, can you talk to us about the who, what, where, when, why, kind of what remained in the aftermath for your family? Absolutely. I still remember it pretty vividly considering that I was in the third grade. My family received a phone call in August as we were preparing to get ready for school because both of my parents were public school teachers. And they said that the Clear Fork of the Brazos River was rising and our house would be flooded. And we all walked outside. It's a bright, sunny day, probably close to 100. And I remember everybody laughing and going, no, no, there has never been water on this land. Mm. It's family land. And we knew that, you know, that was not a normal occurrence in our area. But what a lot of people don't realize is that flooding doesn't just happen when you're getting water rain in a given area. Mm. It can actually be happening upstream. And then as the water comes down, that can actually cause the flooding. And, and that's what was resulting in that situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I remember that the water kept coming up and we kept watching it. And then eventually what we decided to do as it was pretty close is people came and showed up at our house and said, we're going to take some of your, a few of your possessions and your kids. And my dad stayed behind because he was like, this is not going to flood. And if it does, it'll just be a little bit and I'll just raise, keep raising the furniture up so that we don't ruin all everything there. Mm-hmm. Well, we all left and the water came in and we had about four and a half feet of water in our house for over two weeks. And that part of Texas is oil country. And so there were big oil tankers that the rushing water had knocked over. So oil had coated everything. Mm. And my father was living in the attic at this time And a boat came by from an emergency responder and they said, you're going to have to leave. The risk of fire is too high and we need to get you evacuated. So he jumped on the boat. We did end up losing pretty much everything. Uh, My parents had built the house six months before, leveraged everything they had to build it, and we didn't have flood insurance. Mm. So we got to totally rebuild the house. Uh, And... A lot of interesting things happened in that process. I, I ended up getting a, a set of the cabinets that were up high and out of the water. And I got that moved to my bedroom mm. because I had gotten contact lenses. And I remember getting to be able to have my own cabinets to be able to uh, clean my contact lenses with. But we didn't have a lot of furniture. And um, if the American Red Cross hadn't shown up, and invited us to go in and pick out new furniture, I'm not quite sure what we would have done. Uh, We did have a lot of community support. Mm -hmm. The church members were with us a lot, 
and brought us things like really neat recipe books and to help us get our lives started. Mercy. So decades later, you find yourself in a similar circumstances, being in a position where you're able to offer care and and offer resources and, and your own expertise to those who've experienced something similar. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when I started the project, I wasn't really sure that that was what I was going to do. I just had this compelling gut feeling that I had to do everything in my power to try to get this research funding. And I had to go see how my research could help. Okay. So you're now two plus years into this work, you know, with families and and first responders, specifically who had experienced Hurricane Harvey in the Houston area. And a thumbnail sketch of of your research, as I understand it, and and please enter in and and edit as you need to, Carrie. Um, you've spent your career studying how people communicate using technology, right? And in the project we're talking about today, you and your colleagues are exploring the role of social media in helping people get rescued during floods and and other crisis social media usage. Can you walk listeners and I through the scope of your project and what your key goals are, what you hope to do? Absolutely. So one of the things that we noticed very early on with Hurricane Harvey is people were posting all kinds of messages on social media. And I live in Austin, Texas, about two and a half hours away from where most of the flooding occurred post-Hurricane Harvey. And I had friends who were even packing their boats and headed to Houston to go rescue people. And so the goal of our project was to understand what is that role that mobile devices and social media played in connecting people, in helping get their message out and to show people the type of danger that they were in. And as we've since learned, sometimes people didn't proactively put that information out there but their friends and family use social media to then turn around and say, hey, I think you're in trouble. I think you need to get out of there. And so it went both ways in terms of how people were using social media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this was, was it early September of 2017? It was, it started right at the end of August Mm -hmm. and then the early part of September. And um, very quickly, we got to see a lot of social media posts that were made. And one of the other interesting things about our project is that we, when we wrote the grant proposal, we asked to be able to interview and ask permission to collect people's private social media posts. Hmm. So instead of just going out and looking what Twitter has to offer, which is by far the dominant approach to most disaster communication research today, we actually met with these people individually and interviewed them extensively, built trust, and they would share their private social media posts with us. So we now have a database, not a big database, but a very meaningful database of people's private social media data. And what we've also been able to do and we're starting to do now is go back through and mine those 
um, private images to try to get a picture of what does a real call for help looks like, look like. How do people communicate whenever they need help or they're realizing, oh my goodness, I've got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Just listening to you, Carrie, it takes me back to my own experience of that social media surrounding Hurricane Harvey. Yes. And I had been preparing to, to come to the Houston area. I had wrapped up production of a documentary focused on childhood cancer awareness and a nonprofit um, located in the Houston area. And September is National Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Mm. And I found myself kind of looking at Twitter, looking at the the images on Instagram and Facebook and pausing. And all I could think about is how are these how are these kids with cancer and their families, right, who are already in the midst of pretty profound trauma? What happens when that is complicated by a natural disaster? Absolutely. Right. And we ended up postponing the screening of that documentary, and we postponed it by several months because it wasn't just in in the midst of that and the immediate aftermath. Houston is still, right, recovering. Absolutely. I was just there this weekend, and yes, it is still recovering. Mm. The organization that I work with, I remember in in September, they shifted what they were doing with the resources they raised for childhood cancer. They still wanted to be true to their mission, but they also wanted to acknowledge that there were people who were in a double bind, right? They were facing both childhood cancer and the financial toxicity that comes with that. And in some cases, they lost their house. Yes. So they were funneling um, their resources to that. I think it's so difficult when, when you're in Ohio or Nebraska or New England to really transport yourself to that situation if you've never gone through that, like you have, right? Like, like yeah. many of those survivors have. Yes. So you've been collecting and analyzing data for a couple of years. Your work has started to, to yield really interesting insights. In the health communication essay, you introduce readers to individuals that you describe as temporarily health-compromised individuals. Mm-hmm. Who are temporarily health-compromised individuals, and, and why is their evacuation during floods particularly tricky? So this is not something that we anticipated finding when we went into the field and collected our data. Like you mentioned, people who have cancer, it's a chronic condition. You know that you have it and you're ongoing through treatment. The interesting thing is that a lot of times your friends and family are also aware and maybe your community is. So when a disaster hits, you focus your attention on trying to help those people who have these chronic conditions get out safely. But there's another group of people that emerged in our data. And we were fortunate enough to get to interview a running club. And they really opened my eyes to what an integral part people who run are to a community. 
And these runners, healthy, healthy people, right? And I interviewed one person who talked about the fact that she had had knee surgery the same week that Hurricane Harvey hit. And she very matter of fact was talking about her rescue and how she had to take multiple boats and try to walk. And she tried, had to keep that knee out of the dirty water hmm. because if anything even splashed on her, she risks serious, serious infection. And the interesting thing is, I think she didn't even know that she needed to be careful. Um, she kind of had an idea, but someone with a chronic condition really understands and they've been told repeatedly by health professionals what they need to do. She was thinking she was still a healthy individual. And yeah, I've got to keep water out of it, but I'm not going to ask for any special favors and I'm still going to take the boats. And the other thing I realized is that at first, her friends and family, they didn't know she had had knee surgery. They didn't know she was a, what we call temporarily health compromised individual because she's always healthy. Mm. And so we saw several incidents in our data set of people who had had, you know, the flu or some type of temporary condition. And because a rescue is more of an effort, oftentimes of community is what I saw, the community doesn't know to look out for what they consider to be healthy people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned dirty water. Right. Mm -hmm. That that she had to move through dirty water at one point. Right. In that evacuation process. That's part of the title of your essay. <laughs> Let's dig a little deeper into that. Why? Why does dirty water in and of itself create all sorts of health challenges? Oh, my goodness. And the images that we collected, you could literally watch the flood water go from being almost look like a lake to then being dirty, dirty brown water. And what happens when flooding occurs is, of course, there's some, some dirt runoff, but you also have sewage that is overflowing into this water. And so many of our interviewees talked about the smell that they mm. couldn't stand staying in their homes because it just smelled terrible. And whenever you can't see the bottom of water, a lot of people are really uncomfortable. And so people were having to evacuate their homes in this brown water. There were all kinds of rumors and legitimate concerns, health concerns, about infection, about rashes that would occur whenever you got in the water. But people had no choice. They had to walk through this water. And when they were walking, they didn't know what they were stepping on because mm -hmm. they couldn't see the ground. Mm -hmm. And the dirty water became such a common thing discussed in our data. And it also made me remember my own experience going back into my home that had experienced dirty water for two and a half weeks. And what happens after the water leaves just became really vivid in my mind because there, in our case, there was oil left on everything, the walls, the carpet, there are dying frogs that, you know, couldn't handle what was in the water that were on my carpet in my room um, when I went back in. And all of that came to mind when people would tell me about all of these issues that they had and concerns with this 
contaminated, dirty water. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the people who need to be rescued, right, and go through that dirty water. But I'm also thinking about the first responders yes, and the healthcare workers who are immersed in that, right, for days at a time. Yes. What are some of the challenges that they face? So they face a lot of challenges. What a lot of official responders were issued some boots that would go over their knees. But very quickly, you kind of get into the water beyond that point. We had police, fire, National Guard, pretty much all different types of official emergency rescuer responders that were out in that water day in and day out. Then we had healthcare workers who were dealing with people who had been in the water and who had gotten sick from it. And one of the things that we forget is that these official responders, they're doing double duty. A lot of them not only were involved in rescuing and helping people, but they also had their own homes and households and families to be concerned about. Mm. So I'll never forget one police officer who talked about he was deployed to go into downtown Houston and they they couldn't travel the roads very easily. So they put them in a hotel and, you know, they had food that they didn't want to eat. And for a while, for short term, that, you know, that's an issue. That's not the biggest issue, though. He had left his wife, who had her first um, sonogram. She was pregnant with their first child. Mm. And he had to leave her at home. And she went to her first visit by herself. And she was scared to death that she was going to have to move out of the house by herself because he was in Houston downtown trying to rescue people every day for over a week. And so we often forget that our emergency responders and our healthcare workers, they still have lives outside of these emergency jobs that they're pulled into. And so if they're grumpy, they kind of have a reason. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've learned that you, you need to give people a lot more slack in this time period because you have no idea what they are having to deal with at home, and they may not even be allowed to leave and to go home and help their own families. Hi folks, Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking with Dr. Carrie Stevens from the University of Texas at Austin on her work on social media usage during and in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. This work has been funded by the National Science Foundation. If you'd like to read some of Carrie's work, I encourage you to go to the Defining Moments Facebook page at DM Podcast WOUB. Carrie's forthcoming book, New Media in Times of Crisis, is published by Rutledge, Taylor & Francis, and is available now for pre-order, and you can get a 20% discount. You can also get a 30% discount on her 2018 book, Negotiating Control, Organizations and Mobile Communication, published by Oxford. Again, all of this information is available on our Facebook page, 
DM podcast W-O-U-B. Okay, back to our conversation. The stories that that you're sharing now, that you've shared in your essay in health communication, they're at once humbling and haunting. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what those stories have to teach us. Mm-hmm. How can they how can they work on us and through us so that we're better prepared for disasters? Yes. I would say there's kind of two main things that have risen to the top as key takeaways. And the first one is the power of communities. People organized, people supported one another in ways that I think I've only heard about. And now I got to hear it straight from the mouths of people who experienced complete strangers coming to help them. And so I think that we can use that power of community to begin to think about how do we structure and help people think about getting prepared for disasters and emergencies. I was really fortunate I got pulled in on one of the first community-wide fire drills, wildfire drills, that happened in the in the Travis County area of Texas. And a community got together and planned and executed, along with cooperation from official emergency responders, a, a fire drill. They got in their house, they got their medications, they practiced getting their pets in the car, which is a big deal for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And they, 85 people, actually evacuated to a location. And I think that those types of things should give us some inspiration and to think about the power of communities realizing that when a disaster hits, it takes a first responder quite a bit of time to get there. And it might be those people who live around you that are going to save your lives. Mm-hmm. So the second key thing that I have realized in this, and... I think this has come to me over time. People don't understand who haven't been through this, and maybe even people who haven't been through it recently, because I think they forget, how much information gets thrown at you. You are so overloaded with information and communication from lots of different places when a disaster is about to strike. And you don't know who to believe You don't know who to listen to. There's always conflicting information. And then when you pile on top of it, people in the greater Houston area, quite a few of them had never had their homes flood before. And then you hear the comments being made by people who don't live there. Why didn't they evacuate when they were told to? Mm. You know, I don't, you know, they needed to have helped themselves. I will tell you that this has taught me We all need to be patient and understanding of the decisions that other people's make during a disaster. And the main reason is we don't know what was going on for them. Mm -hmm. Quite often, it was not people being lazy and not listening to the information, according to my interviewees. As a matter of fact, I remember interviewing some really sharp, intelligent people who were contacting their friends who were civil engineers and on water boards and trying desperately to figure out 
Is my house in the area where I need to be worried? Do I need to evacuate? And they got conflicting information. And so this is not a simple solution of we tell people to evacuate and they evacuate. Uh, It's so much more complex than that. And I think that by getting to interview these people, it's really taught me personally a lot more patience. And I try to be so much less judgmental now because I don't know what they were dealing with in the moment. Amen. And I'm also coming full circle. I'm reminded of your story and your family's story, Carrie, where it wasn't until your dad was in an attic of your home that he finally had to evacuate and chose to evacuate. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that there were people who judged us. And I'm sure that there were there were people who showed up at our house and said, we're going to get you out of here. But I also remember, you know, this was family land. We knew the history of the land. It hadn't flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a lot of power in people's memories and in people's histories and in families. And especially in a place like Texas, where we do have so much personal land ownership, this is very powerful. And to overcome someone's experiences in the past and get them to change their mind, you know, when they're being bombarded with information, to me, this is a wicked problem. That if we can figure out how to start to move that map, that mental thinking that people have about preparing way far in advance, because that's when they're a lot more capable of making good decisions, um, maybe they can react in the moment and and make better decisions. But I'll tell you, I don't I look back on most of the decisions that people made and in my data it would appear that they made the right decision for them at the time. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't like they were deliberately trying to break rules or not listen to authorities. Um, they didn't know what was going on because they were confused. No doubt. So I'm assuming that listeners and I can learn more about these communication challenges and strategies in your forthcoming book, New Media in Times of Crisis. Carrie, I pre-ordered this book this morning. Great. <laughs> it's in my Amazon cart. I'm, I'm excited. So it's published by Taylor and Francis. And um, like I said, it's available for pre-order. What can interested readers expect in your new book? So my new book is not Hurricane Harvey specific because I actually had started that book whenever I was in the field at Hurricane Harvey. But I would say it's really inspired by that. And one of the nice things about doing an edited book, and that one is an edited book, is that I got to tap into the wisdom of some of the sharpest researchers in the country who are doing some cutting cutting edge work around how we're going to use new media in these times of crisis. So there's a chapter on wireless emergency alerts. Mm-hmm. You know, those uh, 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 that you get on your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, the expert who studies that has written a chapter in it. We also have a chapter in there about how groups and organizations actually organize after a disaster to help one another. There is a chapter on how practitioners, which 
I would say that this is a really key thing that's come out of my Hurricane Harvey work as well. Someone who's responsible for using social media in a disaster, a lot of times they themselves are operating with very unclear rules because we're still in a time of, I would say, the wild, wild west of social media because there aren't firm rules about what official organizations can and should post and how they would work and with, with the general public. And so there's a chapter in there on kind of the angst that practitioners have felt over the last few years in making those difficult decisions about how to use social media for good when they face things like active shooter emergencies and um, murders. Mm -hmm. And so there's some of that that's in there. And then the final thing that's kind of a, a, just to give you an idea of the breadth, is we have a chapter in there that, that talks about safety communication at work. And a lot of times we don't think about the fact that, you know, the organization is telling us this is how you're supposed to be safe and we take those online training modules. But what my colleague found is that actually you're, the people around you who talk to you, they actually influence your safety decisions at work. So I'm excited about the book. I literally will get it in my in my hands later this week. They're supposed to ship it to me to a conference that I'm attending. And um, I, I think it will be a nice broad overview of some of the trends in terms of how we're using new media and communicating in a lot of different crisis, emergency and disaster situations. Mm. <clears throat> in some ways, it, there are some consistent threads with the book that you published a year ago, Negotiating Control, Organizations and Mobile Communication. Yes, yes, there really are. Um, in that book, I, I've been fascinated by the fact that mobile cell phones and various mobile devices that we're using, they've really changed a lot of our ability to communicate. Now that we carry them with us and we take them into the workplace, you know, we take them with us when we experience a disaster. It's caused a lot of changes in terms of how organizations themselves, our work organizations, how they provide us technology tools to do our job. Back in the early 1990s, some people listening to this might remember bag cell phones. That was the way that, that you know, you literally had a cell phone in a bag and you plugged it into your cigarette adapter in your car if you were going down the road uh, and not a lot of people had them and the companies paid for those cell phones because I mean I remember someone getting on to me because my bill went to six hundred dollars um, but the average was five hundred dollars at that time mm -hmm. and so they were super expensive to use and then now what we have is we have you know, just about everyone has some type of a mobile phone and a mobile device with them at all times. And it's really shifted how we can communicate. And that book talks about the struggles that we experience whenever our workplace says, well, you have a phone, bring it to work and use it for work. And sometimes that's a real problem. In the Hurricane Harvey data, one of the things that a lot of the emergency responders was, were told is that they could not use their personal cell phones hmm. because they were provided with these 
fancy emergency radios that are great and they're robust in the weather. But the problem is that the civilians that they were trying to communicate with, they don't have access to that communication channel. So they had to use their personal cell phones to be able to find a way to talk between emergency responders and the citizens who were actually helping them in that process. So some of what that book talks about is these struggles because the National Guard didn't necessarily reimburse those people mm -hmm. who were working in the field for them if their phone got wet. And this was a wet, wet situation in Hurricane Harvey. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of what that book talks about. It was a lot of fun to write um, and really represents about about 15 years of data collection that I pulled together in that book. Mm -hmm. Let's come full circle, Carrie. Um, you have poignantly shared how your personal experiences as a flood survivor really informed your work in ways that you had not anticipated. Um, in turn, how, how has this work transformed you? Yeah. I would say that the biggest thing that it's taught me is that research is a lot broader than what I even thought it was when I entered this project. I was trained to be an objective scientist. And I've always prided myself on the fact that I can build connections with people, but I can still be that objective scientist. And I actually now believe that I can interject my emotions and use the fact that I'm a human. I have human lived experiences. And sometimes that's what it takes to build trust and to be able to collect the absolute best data that I can. It's that human connection that allows another person to share with me something that I can then turn into a more general understanding of the research that I'm doing. And I, I always kind of knew that, but I think now I believe it so much more strongly, the power of narrative, the power of these stories that people tell you. And you have to listen and you have to feel to be able to truly respond and to be able to help people and do good with your research. Mm -hmm. I hear you, Carrie, on a regular basis. I am incredibly grateful that people trust me to share their story and to become a co-narrator in the process, including you. Thank you for, for joining me today and sharing your experiences um, I'm excited for what these ideas have to offer our listeners, and I look forward to, to seeing your, your book come out um, and arrive on my desk, Carrie. Thank you for this opportunity. It's, uh, you know, the number of disasters are only going to go up, and the severity of the disasters is also increasing. And so I think that we're going to have to be really creative 
We are going to have to look in a lot of different directions if we want to help people get prepared and if ultimately we want to use research to save lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Preach. Yep. I'm trying. I'm sure <laughs> trying. Thanks for joining Dr. Carrie Stevens and I as we talk about health challenges that are amplified during natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey and how we can leverage social media to build community. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. On our Facebook page, we provide links to some of Carrie's written work, her TEDx talk, and her most recent books. You can receive a 30% discount on her 2018 book, Negotiating Control, Organizations and Mobile Communication, published by Oxford, And you can receive a 20% discount on her forthcoming book, New Media in Times of Crisis by Taylor and Francis. And that's a book that you can pre-order now. Again, we'll have all of those links on our Facebook at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. Go in peace and love one another.